Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music for broken bells james mercer of the shins brings his well-crafted pop songs while brian burton aka danger mouse brings his dance flavored production chops the result is a resounding buy-it i'm jim DeRogatis. and i'm greg cott broken bells joins us for a special live performance in portland then it's Jim's turn to drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, we did not get a chance last week to pay tribute to Jack Bruce, that incredible bassist who died at the age of 71 on October 25th. I'm going to play a song from him later, but not from the band you'd think, from a group I actually got to see him perform with. That's going to be your Desert Island Jukebox pick later in the show, Jim. But first, we've got some music news. Greg, I know that's your single of the year. That is Shake It Off from young Taylor Swift from her fifth album, 1989, named for the year of her birth. She has just made very big news with that record. It has sold nearly 1.3 million copies in its first week. That makes it only the second album of 2014 to sell more than a million copies, period. It's just behind Frozen, that soundtrack that will never go away. And nobody else has sold a million copies this year at all in the first week like Taylor just did. In fact, you have to go all the way back to 2002 for the Eminem show to find a first week debut that potent. Uh, he sold 1.3 million way back then. So Taylor Swift is proving so successful, Greg, that she's beginning to flex her muscle in the music industry. She made news also this week by announcing that she is pulling not only 1989, but all of her albums off of Spotify. Said Taylor, and I quote, music is art and art is important and rare. Important rare things are valuable valuable things should be paid for. She's joining people like Tom York of Radiohead who have criticized Spotify's business model. I saw an article based on information from Spotify Artists, a website that explains the economic model to artists. People earn on average less than a penny per play of a song on Spotify, about 0.006 to 0.0084 cents per play. Spotify denies this. They say we have a good business model. It's getting better for artists all the time as more people join. And some people on the level of, say, a Taylor Swift have made almost half a million dollars from Spotify plays. But she's raising the issue anew. A lot of people are questioning why they're not making as much money from streaming as they are from album sales. Taylor's doing well with album sales indeed. Come in, do the right thing. Get up and have a party. 
in Aquila. Cause she said it leave us to she feel a hestamita. It's shrewd off the radar in the shadow of a beacon. Have a dirty weekend, interesting proposition. Insinuating lessons. At the opposite end of the commercial spectrum from Taylor Swift, Jim, is this band that we're playing right now, Young Fathers. That's a song called Get Up from a new album called Dead, which just won the prestigious Mercury Prize in London the other night. This is an award for the best British or Irish album of the year, and it was a huge upset, this relatively obscure band that describes itself as Liberian, Nigerian, Scottish, psychedelic, hip-hop, electro-boy band. I like that. I think that covers just about the entire spectrum of music, actually. Maybe Klezmer needs to be in there. Exactly. They upset some big nominees. Damon Albarn was nominated, Anna Calvi, Royal Blood, FKA Twigs, big-name albums all in the U.K. beaten out by this upstart hip-hop group. This is only the fourth hip-hop act to win a Mercury Prize since the award was inaugurated in 1992. Now, there have been some big-name winners of the Mercury Prize in past years, P.J. Harvey, Franz Ferdinand, Arctic Monkeys, but some critics of the award are saying that they are awarding the prize more often to these obscure acts like Young Fathers that really are never heard from again. This Young Fathers album sold fewer than 2,500 copies in the U.K., Very few people had heard of it. When the prize was announced, it got a sales bump of only a few hundred copies. This is not Taylor Swift category we're (laughs) talking about here. But I think the wider issue here, Jim, is that most bands are not selling a lot of albums these days. A quarter of the acts nominated this year for the Mercury Prize have sold fewer than a 1,000 records. So it speaks to, I think, the wider issue of the music industry and the decline in recorded music sales. listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Insane Lullaby. It was recorded for the Sparkle Horse Project, Dark Night of the Soul, and it's the first time that two great artists came together, Brian Burton, a.k.a. Danger Mouse, and James Mercer of the Shins. Now, it was a really fruitful pairing, one that led to the formation of a band called Broken Bells, and two albums later, it's still going strong. James Mercer has been on Sound Opinions before, talking about his work with the Shins, but Brian Burton is famously shy with the press. So we were thrilled when he agreed to join his Broken Bells bandmate for a live event in James's hometown of Portland, Oregon. Greg, you and I were joined by the listeners of OPB Music for a special performance presented by Goose Island at the historic Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. James and Brian talk about writing songs together, maintaining their individual identities, and living up to people's expectations. They also perform some tunes from their latest release, After the Disco. First, we go back to their first fateful meeting at the Roskilde Festival in Denmark. (laughs) 
were you aware of each other's work prior to that? Had you been listening to each other's stuff and when, when you had met? Yeah, I had just, it was, so that would have been 2004, so I guess 2003 is when Shoot Scenario came out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I remember where I, where I was when I heard that. I, I heard it playing in a, in a, in a Warp Records office and kind of, you know, was like, what is this? And I hadn't heard the first album or anything like that. I had never even heard of it. And I just heard that record playing and I wanted, wound up just listening to it a, a lot for the next couple months. And then I went and did a festival and saw they were on the bill the next day. And so I came back the next day just to watch them play. And I went backstage and, and the band was back in the same, they were in the same dressing room I was in the day before. They were playing the same time just the next day. So I went back just to watch them and I wound up meeting them backstage before they went on and watched from the side of the stage. And then we wound up hanging out, watching Morrissey and some other bands and wound up in, we wound up going to, into the city, into Copenhagen or something. And yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's uh, the first time we met was this whole big, long, huge and three days later, after walking into Copenhagen, you uh, reemerged. And <laughs> what happens in Copenhagen stays in Copenhagen, huh? So, so, so James, I got to ask you: Were you one of those uh, millions of people that downloaded the uh, the Gray album, uh, the Danger Mouse, uh, the unknown Danger Mouse at the time uh, had floated? You know, out I, there? Uh, yeah, we were playing the Gray album when Brian came and visited us. We had it on backstage. Do you remember that detail? I kind of do. I yeah. think so, yeah. <laughs> so Marty reminded me of that. Yeah. That we Marty were actually was. listening to it when he showed up. So it was a nice coincidence. It's never been a nigga in this good for this long, this hood, or this pop, this hot, or this strong, with so many different flows. This one's for this song. The next one I switch up. This one will get me up. He's bucks. Too lazy to make up. They shake crazy. They don't paint pictures. They just trace me. You know what? Soon they forget where they pluck. They hold staff and they try to reverse the outcome. I'm like, tough. I'm not a writer. I'm a writer for myself and others. I say a big verse. I'm only big enough, my brother. Big enough, my barrel. I'm big enough to do it. I'm that that seems really rare, though. I mean, our experience as journalists, and I know many musicians that we've interviewed, too, have this experience, that sometimes you meet somebody whose work you admire. They turn out not to necessarily to be people you admire. But, but the fact that you guys too had... Too true. <laughs> too true. We could talk for hours about that, but we won't. And yet, uh, you guys seem to have struck up this fast friendship built out of this mutual admiration musically uh, pretty quickly. Well, yeah, I mean, it was 2004, so a lot of stuff hadn't even happened yet, you know, um, for myself anyway. We would just see each other as it went on. The next time I saw him, you know, the first time there was no Gnarls Barkley, and the next time there was, we ran each other on tour a couple years later. And I would think I was doing Good, the Bad, and the Queen, I think. Yeah, you showed each other me in London. a little bit of that. I was playing in the demos for that, like in a hotel room in London, just trying to impress him and stuff. But little by little, I guess there was more stuff that I guess we were both doing. And then eventually we just kind of, it was kind of a natural progression. I always wanted to work with him, but it was just the right timing. And it wound up being four years after we first met. But then that's four, six years ago, something like that. Six years ago. Yeah, yeah. now it would be. Uh, we both were in a situation where we wanted to just do some new project. Still something creative, but I guess different than what we had been recently involved with you know james um this question is specifically for you because i think 
people view you as kind of calling the shots primarily in that group. And, and then working with somebody like Brian, where it's very much a collaboration. Yeah. Uh, were you just looking for something different than being the guy doing, doing all the heavy lifting all the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to collaborate with somebody. I wanted to write with somebody. Um, and I also wanted to... I think I wanted to work with somebody who was a producer, too. I mean, it, that was... I just saw these roles out there that, that I had yet to really discover in my own work life, you know, and, and it was kind of a perfect moment, I think, for me. So, Brian, you, you're very particular, I think, too. You've either very particular or very fortunate or some combination of the two, but it seems like everything you've worked on has had a great deal of artistic merit. It doesn't seem like you choose your collaborators idly, like it's not whimsical. It seems like you have a very specific idea of working with somebody for, for a reason. Maybe I'm completely off base about that, but what was it about James that made you want to work with him? Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, I just try to find something that's already amazing and great. I don't try to make something into something that's that way, I try to keep it that way. And I try to just get involved with people who are already doing something unique and special themselves. And James is one of those people. I mean, I think that for me, when I remember, I remember seeing something just, just, I don't know, you kind of hear, hear people talk about bands and this and that, and you, know, you talk about the shins, and it just wasn't the same. It wasn't just some indie rock band. There was a voice, and there was something going on there. You listen to the, to the music, you hear the melodies. It's very, very, very special. And I dressed to the golden door. I was strumming on a storm again. Pulling teeth on the prince of gold. I didn't think that that was something that was necessarily a widespread known thing at the time. Now, I didn't know enough, and then you see tons of fans and everything else, but when I heard it, it was something very, very special and different. So I sought it out like I do anything else that's like that to try to be a part of something that's already pretty special. Here's Broken Bells performing Medicine from their latest album, After the Disco, live in Portland on Sound Opinions.
Medicine by Broken Bells, live on Sound Opinions at the Schnitzer Hall in Portland, Oregon. We'll have more with James Mercer and Brian Burton in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Coming up, more with Broken Bells, and then it's my turn to add a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And the song you're hearing now is called A Perfect World by our guest this week, James Mercer of The Shins and super producer Brian Burton, who worked together as Broken Bells. The pair joined us for a special live taping of Sound Opinions presented by Goose Island Beer and OPB Music at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon. Brian Burton, or Danger Mouse, is a noted producer, and many of you will know his work with Gnarls Barkley, Gorillaz, and Beck, to name a few. So I was curious what James Mercer thought a collaboration with Burton would be like. What could he bring out of the Shins frontman? I think I, I wanted a collaborator, and I was curious about the, this role of a producer and what that could do, you know? So, I mean, and Brian is both. Brian's a songwriter. I yeah. mean, mainly. I think Brian's a songwriter. So it, maybe that's the difference, you know, from the guy who is somebody who's sort of hands-on and gets into the songwriting and into the real mechanics and the math of trying to make this stuff cool, and somebody who sort of sits back behind the couch and watches everyone and then every 15 minutes says something's lame yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> he's not that type of producer you know he's yeah. really in there with the nuts and bolts of stuff well and i read a joint interview where you said the songwriting comes from us having conversations and it didn't sound as if they were like let's rant about you know whatever political issue today it sounded like they were personal conversations that then inspired you guys to begin a song it's it's the other way around really it's it's we make the music in in the studio we go in and we don't really discuss what's going to happen that day we'll go in with nothing we'll just go in and start picking up instruments and by the end of the day we'll have the the rough sketch of a song and the next day we'll see if it's any good after we slept on it and then if it's good we'll work on it but then we do that over and over again till we have a body of of music but in the meantime it's kind of like something else is happening which is at the end of each day you know james is kind of 
comes down from Portland down to LA and lives with me. And at the end of each day, we go eat and drink and get belligerent and talk, <laughs> excuse me, about everything basically <laughs> and each other in our own lives. And, and we get really into it. And that adds up over the course of months and months and months. And when we're done with all the music, we sit down, the worst, most painful part of it, we sit down and pull out our pads and pens and we start writing the album. What does this album mean? What do these songs mean? And they're scratch vocals, but we haven't really done the lyrics yet. And sure enough, by the time the songs start coming out, it winds up being all the stuff we were talking about. But we don't discuss it. It's just what winds up happening. And you see the song like, all right, I guess this is the thing we were talking about here or there. It just winds up being there. And it's really easy to communicate at the end of the record for us because we just spent the last however many months getting to know each other again and where we are in our lives and everything, and that's what winds up on the album. Let me get it out of my system, this Eno fixation of mine, okay? His approach to me to production is very zen. You're living your life, and you follow that path or that stream wherever it goes. It sounds like that's what you guys do. You're getting together. You're working on this. You're seeing what's coming out naturally of the two of you being together, and then you realize at the end it's produced a theme and an album and a concept. Yeah, everything's a concept album, really. I mean, you spend a couple months with somebody, and when you're done, there's going to be something. If it means anything, it's going to be something specific to that time and everything else. So I think the last record we did is very much that, whether we like it or not. It, it just was. It, that's fascinating because I think when people think about collaboration, they think about what you are describing, two people in a room exchanging ideas and literally writing each line together, it seems like. But that happens incredibly rarely, actually. When you talk to so-called collaborations, usually one guy or gal is bringing in the bulk of the song and the other guy sort of puts their finishing touch on it. Amy Mann, we had Amy Mann on the show a couple of times, and she's talked about this issue of giving up control of the song. Like, once you start it, you know kind of where you want to finish it, and you have this idea in your head of what the song's going to be. And it's very difficult for somebody to collaborate with somebody else because they already have a clear idea of where that song is going to go. They may not know exactly how they're going to get there, but they have a pretty good idea. So it's interesting that you're able to sort of give up that control well, uh, that, and, and write together. I think that implies that there's uh, enough skill involved I know, on my part to be able to do that, and there isn't. Like Every good thing that's ever happened was probably an accident that I've been a part of that I would have contributed. Any, any idea of sitting down and going, okay, I'm going to try this, and when I get to the end, it's going to be that. I've done it. It's not very good usually. But when somewhere along the way something happens that you didn't mean to or somebody else is involved in it in a way that you would have never thought, that's usually the stuff that winds up being a little bit special for yeah. me. So the idea of giving up the control and everything else, I'm not good enough to control it anyway. So That's, it's, that's very similar to what I was going to say. I mean, I, I would just add that sometimes that main idea, that perfect picture that you had in mind where the song was going to be and what it was, that's exactly the problem with yeah. the song. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing that you're going to have to drop right away. But see, this whole industry is set up. I guarantee... Brian, you've gotten 100 calls. You know, give me that crazy thing. Can you give me that crazy thing? I've got a project, right? And you've gotten, like, we need this. We need that Garden no. State music. Can you give us yeah. more of that Garden State? The thing State? that I have is that I've written many songs where people say, oh, James Mercer's trying to do that new slang thing again, which I've never <laughs> done. I've yet to even have that conscious thought in my mind. In fact, I would do anything but that. I would, you know, forever try and stray from that. Yeah, but that is an annoying fact. Go teeth and a curse for this town. All in my mouth Only I don't know how They go down 
That's the old music industry talk, and that's for sure. Uh, Broken Bells. Okay, it's interesting, too, because I think people kind of viewed it as... I think initially people were describing it when the, when the self-titled record came out in 2010. Side Project. But how did you conceive it when you first started uh, working together, Brian? What was your feeling? Was this going to be something that was more than just two guys getting together in the studio writing songs? I mean, I think every time, yeah. I mean, every time I work with somebody, I figure it's going to be you know the the lifelong marriage it's gonna be the best thing ever and everybody's gonna love it and everybody's gonna finally like something a lot that i do or whatever and and i always think that and this was no different really i mean it it just it just means a lot it meant a lot from the first week we were in there and we weren't trying to do anything specific you know it was just let's see what happens but this was not a business arrangement. It wasn't like our, you know, people putting us together or anything like that. I mean, we didn't even, we waited till we finished the album before we let any labels or anybody hear it. I mean, we just did it ourselves. We just kind of went and did it. But the thing is with James and, you know, which was really easy to tell right away, which even though I knew him casually, you don't know till you're in the studio, but you can tell from his music and everything else. And I would even say for myself too, is that anything you do means something. There's no throwaway. There's no like side this or side that. It just wouldn't work. It just doesn't happen that way. I think it's hard for people to maybe, you know, if there, if you see a lot of music or there's a lot of collaborations, a lot of things to understand that. But yeah, no part of it is throwaway or, or kind of uh, just to, for fun or to be associated with. I mean, when we're in there, everything means something. So it, in the context of our other bands or other things, I mean, it, it just doesn't, you don't really separate them in that way. Like one means more or one has a different meaning or importance or anything like that. Let's hear some live music from Broken Bells. Here's the song, The Angel and the Fool, live on Sound Opinions. Watch the 
Broken Bells with The Angel and the Fool, live on Sound Opinions from Portland. Let's go back to our conversation with James Mercer and Brian Burton. I asked James how he felt this new project affected the way he sings. I mean, I, I would credit Brian with just sort of forcing me to do parts over and over again until I got them right. Um, we both like to avoid using that auto-tune software and stuff <laughs> like that. So that means that I need to do the, the work of just getting a good take. And so I, I think that... You know, it's such a magnifying glass on your singing when you're sitting there with the headphones and you're just sweating in the little vocal booth in his <laughs> studio <laughs> and you really want to get out of there. And it's you're small. Try- it's small and it's, it, you know, and so you're trying to just get exactly the, the right feeling in that little moment and so you just get more aware. I mean, I think it's a real learning process. Mm. And I had never done that before, you know. I often was engineering my own vocal takes so maybe I'm just an inherently lazy person but I would just sort of do my best and uh, I'll double it I'll do three three or something you know and let that go but so it was that I mean I think I and and then also the fact that stylistically we're doing different things and so I'm I'm sort of getting into territory that you know it it maybe isn't uh, traditionally like an indie rock vibe you know and so i'm i'm singing in different styles and stuff which i mean i've probably done in the car like all Mm -hmm. of us you know listening to your favorite (laughs) tunes on the radio singing along to some disco tracks yeah you know whatever and so like and now i get to actually kind of uh use some of that stuff my love for those pop tunes of the past and stuff so this whole thing of Broken Pels not being a band, how long do you think that's going to linger until people finally accept, oh, that's, that's a real band? I don't know. I think you have to really know about us uh, specifically, and we're not super popular to even say it's not a band. I think there's a lot of people who, don't, who know Broken Bells or maybe who have heard of it and don't know what we do, so they're obviously going to you know, know it's a band. But Was people, that free you know, in a way, James? You know, I mean, Shins, you were typecast. Everybody knows you. It's that band, Garden State, the hit, right, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, you get to reinvent yourself. I mean, he doesn't have that problem because he's a man right. of many mystery guises, yeah. right? <laughs> True. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I felt freed up, definitely. I mean, I, I, when you were asking earlier, you know, did we think of this as a band? I mean, I think when I first started working with Brian, I saw it as as a way out, <laughs> you know, in a way, you know, so I was like, this is my new band. I mean, I wasn't thinking this was any side, sort of side project. I mean, I didn't know what the future would be, but I was hoping, you know, that it would be this sort of thing. And then, you know, after working the Broken Bells record, touring and everything, I felt this renewed inspiration to go back to being that sort of benevolent dictator of my own project. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. So they help each other, those two yeah, projects. Yeah, exactly. Here's James Mercer and Brian Burton as Broken Bells with the song Holding On For Life on Sound Opinions. Yeah. 
Holding On For Life from Broken Bells on Sound Opinions. We return to our interview held in front of a live audience in Portland with a question for Brian Burton, a.k.a. Danger Mouse. He produced the now infamous U2 album Songs of Innocence, a polarizing release that iTunes users got for free. When we recorded this with Brian a couple of months ago, Songs of Innocence had yet to be released. I asked Brian how he negotiates his track record as a hitmaker, producing songs like Crazy for Gnarls Barkley, with his instincts as an avant-garde artist, especially when it comes to acts like U2 with these huge expectations. I can't get too much into that, you know, specifically with that band, but I've seen it a lot with a lot of bands and a lot of people, and I think that the, the consistent thing is the more success or the more, I guess, celebrate it. And... The decision is usually, and it carries out in one or two ways, either, and it's hard when you have four people because they can all make different decisions, but the, the, the thing you have to figure out is, do you want to be celebrated or discovered? And I think that you spend so much of your time in the beginning trying to be discovered that once you start to be celebrated, you just want to keep that, and that's boring. The sound of that's pretty boring. And I think that if you want to be discovered, then that takes balls, it takes another risk and you can lose a lot if you do that but the sound of people holding on to what they have is not usually very good well after the disco the new album when it came out immediately thought 3 a.m that was the first thought that came into my mind it's not you're not at the disco it's after the disco and it it made sense to me from that standpoint it's like okay what do you need to hear when you're you know everything's wearing off and but at the same time, you threw, out, you threw out that word disco, and it, it was amazing to me how many people reviewed the record as a disco record. Like, they were trying to, like, wedge it into that disco era stuff. Yeah, you could call the album No More Rock and Roll. They're like, so you made a rock and roll record. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we said yeah. no more. Yeah, no, it's after the disco. I mean, poor choice of, of title, maybe, at this point. I thought it sounded cool at the time, but... I still think it sounds cool. yeah. <laughs> We get to be misunderstood you or something. You thought 3 a.m., I thought 43 years old. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, they're sort of the same. Relatively yeah. similar. Yeah. <laughs> After the disco. Here's the sound of 3 a.m. or 45 years old. Take your pick. The song is Control from Broken Bells from the album After the Disco, live on Sound Opinions.
That was Control, the final song from Broken Bells on Sound Opinions. To watch videos produced by OPB Music, visit us at soundopinions.org. Have a comment on Broken Bells, Danger Mouse, or anything in the musical universe? Give us a call for the air at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Jim drops a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. And as often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island, drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox, and play a song we cannot live without. Jim, you're climbing into the powerboat as we speak. What do you got for us next? Greg, we have to mark the passing of John Simon Asher Bruce, better known as Jack Bruce, one of the most important musicians in the English scene in the 60s. He, of course, was the bassist in the first supergroup, Cream, playing alongside drummer Ginger Baker and guitarist Eric Clapton. You know, he died and everybody was talking about Cream as if that's the only thing he ever accomplished in his years as a musician. He did a lot of other things. There were other power trios, West, Bruce, and Lang, There were many solo albums. There was a band with the great jazz drummer, Billy Cobham. He was always active in the blues, avant-garde rock underground throughout his life, even while battling addiction and health problems. I'm going to play not a Cream song. I was never a huge Cream fan, though I loved the singles when he had that rich baritone vocal, right? At two and a half minutes, Cream was great. I'm going to play another supergroup, though. My favorite was the Golden Palominos, formed by Anton Fear, a drummer who moved from Cleveland to New Jersey in 1981. And the Golden Palominos put out several albums and dominated sort of the New York underground in the early 80s with musicians like Bill Laswell, Jody Harris, visitors like Richard Thompson sitting in, Bernie Worrell, an incredible revolving cast of characters. 
They're probably best known for a single from their second album, Visions of Excess, that featured Michael Stipe on vocals from R.E.M. covering uh, Moby Grape's Omaha. But that same album also included a wonderful tune called Silver Bullet that had been written by Anton Fear, Jody Harris, and Sid Straw. Jack Bruce sang, and he played bass, and I got to see the band perform this live, and man, Bruce was just larger than life. Those vocals, that bass in front of Anton Fear, who I'll say it is a better drummer than Cream's Ginger Baker ever could have been. It was just an amazing night, and that's how I'll remember Jack Bruce. Here's the Golden Palominos with Silver Bullet, my Desert Island jukebox pick on Sound Opinions. Silver Bullet by the Golden Palominos, Jack Bruce on bass and vocals, paying tribute to him on the occasion of his death at age 71. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to line up the year's most disappointing albums. It's the annual Sound Opinions Turkey Shoot. Greg, we have special thanks to Adam Yaffe, Dave Christensen, and OPB Music, as well as the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall this week. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. 
new messages. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Connolly. I'm from Long Beach, New York. I just finished listening to your interview with Ira and your question about math, music, and the brain. They are all interconnected. I am an educator. I remember when I was in school, one of the, my fellow students did a study on teaching things musically, and children remembered things taught to them in verse, along, carried along to a tune, rather than just wrote talking. Listen to your teacher drone on, where she, if she sang your lessons, you'd learn them. Thanks. Bye. My name is Tammy Elliott, and I'm from Franklin, Tennessee. I had a brain aneurysm about 29 years ago, and they played songs to me the whole time I was in a coma, and I came out of the coma about four days later, and to this day, I can sing those songs word for word. Music is beautiful. Hey, I love you. Bye. Hi guys, this is Trent from Chicago. I'm so glad you touched on the wall, you know, the 35 year anniversary. What I thought was interesting was that you said the trial was unlistenable, that you can't even go there, you know, on that album. And that song is the absolute just culmination, right, of so many things that's happening. You got the mother, the, the teacher, the wife, everybody is now, you know, just boom, it's all right there. All these things you've been trying to put behind that wall, he is now forced to confront with them. And I can even remember the exact moment, the first time I heard that song. I, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned the age of 16 being a prepper for the album. I was, in fact, 16 years old at the time, and I was in the back seat of my friend's car. I remember the exact parking lot we were in. I remember the exact location of the exact city. And that moment was actually the moment that I fell in love with Pink Floyd. Obviously, I'm a little biased, but I, I urge you to please go back, listen to that song again. And, of course, the visual representation in the movie is unlike anything other than, you know, done before. So, uh, you know, once again, my name is Trent from Chicago. Thanks for doing what you do, guys. Hey, guys, this is Becky from Chicago. I just listened to your Pink Floyd The Wall episode, and it really struck me because recently I've revisited it. And Thin Ice in particular has been an earworm lately because got a lot of things going on in my life and just that little organ that plays in the middle of that song um, really gets to me and it's kind of just bringing me through my day. Thanks for touching up on that album, and it's one of my favorites. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hi, I'm Dave, calling from uh, 
Winfield, Illinois, and I just wanted to note today the passing of one of the great bassists of my generation, and that's the great Jack Bruce of Cream fame, but before that, many bands and many bands after that. Don't know many people that could play with his speed and dexterity, and I miss you, Jack, already. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.